Hey, staffer listeners, Scott Breen here from the Sustainability Defined Podcast. We define sustainability one concept and one bad joke at a time, learn about a different sustainability topic, and hear from an expert on that topic in each of our monthly episodes. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and at sustainabilitydefined.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest today is Mike Boots, the executive vice president at Breakthrough Energy and director of Gates Ventures Office. Boots, as he is often referred to, helped establish Breakthrough Energy and today oversees its key programmatic initiatives and strategies in the U.S. and Europe. Immediately prior to joining Gates World, Mike was a senior fellow at the Aspen Institute. But before that, he spent more than 10 years as a staffer at the federal and state levels. I got to know Mike when he was at the Council of Environmental Quality, or CEQ, a component within the White House that Mike eventually led as acting chair. There, he was President Obama's environmental advisor and spearheaded initiatives on climate change, conservation, supply chain sustainability, drought, and infrastructure resiliency. Mike also served in policy roles for then-California Governor Gray Davis as the governor's federal representative for energy, environment, and natural resources. And during the Clinton administration, he was an advisor to one of the EPA's regional administrators. Mike and I recorded this episode on Friday, March 23rd. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Mike Boots, welcome to Staffer. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here with you. I am so excited uh, to be talking with you today. As you may know, I like to start at the beginning with folks, just learning a little bit about who they are, where they grew up, what family life was like. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, I uh, I kind of grew up all over. My uh, my my uh, family used to say, "Were we in the witness protection program?" In fact, we were not, but we moved <laughs> around a ton. My parents uh, are both from a tiny farming town in northwest Iowa, uh, and I never lived in Iowa because by the time I came around, they had already moved out and were moving around the country. But I uh, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee moved to Chicago and moved to Los Angeles by the time I was two. Um, Wow. And we just kept moving. I moved to, I spent a chunk of time in elementary school in South Korea, moved back to Chicago, back to Los Angeles. My parents lived in Saudi Arabia when I was in college. So anyway, we we moved around a ton. Incredible. Now, why was that? So my dad had, uh, he was an engineer with an MBA who did sales for a steel construction company. My mom uh, worked in education, and while we were in Asia, worked for the American Red Cross, um, but mostly raised me and my two brothers. Um, And so we just, we moved around uh, for that that work. Uh, And it was an amazing, eye-opening chance to see the world uh, and the country. Uh, and learn a lot about people who, you know, were not from Northwest Iowa. Um, and uh, but it was it was a real treat. And uh, and what what that means though is that my brothers and I all have a different place that we consider home. I definitely consider myself a Californian, having lived there as a kid. Uh, I went to, graduated from high school there and went to college there. So, um, but but yeah. So I, I spent a lot of time moving around to a lot of places. Yeah. So you mentioned you grew up in California. You went to school at UCLA, uh, where you were a communications major. And I know you later earned a master's in environmental policy at Syracuse. Where in your early days did you become an environmentalist? And and did you know early on that you wanted to make it your life's work? Yeah, I... Uh... 
I didn't know it early on, to be honest. I So we grew up in Southern California um, with these other places in between. Uh, we spent a lot of time as a family outside on the coast and camping and all that kind of stuff. And I really, I sort of had a huge affinity for the outdoors. I never thought that I would make the environment or climate my life's work. Um, but when I was uh, a junior at UCLA, uh, I left to study abroad in Australia for a chunk of time and came back. Uh, really interested in uh, trying to marry my passion for the environment and the outdoors with my uh, studies around communications. And so uh, the, the weird path I took into policy was I took my first job uh, working for a local conservation group in Santa Monica that happened to be led by the actor Ted Danson. Um, wow. so Ted was my first boss out of college <laughs> That's incredible. Um, during his last season on Cheers. <laughs> no um, way. And so my job was uh, really about public education and engagement uh, in that in that organization. But the most interesting job in that place to me was the policy director who was doing both local and state and federal policy around that. And I thought to myself, that seems way more interesting than the thing I'm doing here and might be a, a path where I can I can leverage what I have been studying. So I really was interested. I was a kid who was voracious about current events and, and the news and had originally thought I was going to go into journalism. Uh, and then when I, you know, sort of was thinking, as you do in college, wait, how do I take this interest and, and merge it to something that's that's useful and somewhere where I want to make a vocation out of it? How do I do that? And uh, and so anyway, this early time uh, at this organization with Ted helped me see that the policy piece was where I might be able to have the most impact. And so it, it led me to graduate school to study public policy. OK, so I have to ask, what was Ted Danson like as a boss? <laughs> well, he was a little distracted as a boss because he was trying to wrap up his last season on Cheers. But yeah. I got to say, what we, one of my jobs was to spend, it was a very easy job, to be honest. I was trying to take advantage of his Rolodex to raise money and raise awareness for these issues that he cared a lot about. And so the last season of Cheers was working with people like Danny DeVito and Woody Harrelson and others to go make that happen. So it was a real blast. Oh, that's cool. So um, you make your way to Washington um, and, and, and I want to, I sort of want to hear how that happens. Um, the, the first job that, you know, is in the, the formal structure of government, as I understand your career arc anyway, is at EPA, where you were a policy advisor to the regional administrator. Was this, were, were, were you in Washington at that time or were you in California at that time? Yeah, so I uh, I was in D.C. I came down from Syracuse, uh, and it was an interesting time. It was 1994. Gingrich had just taken over the House of Representatives, and most public programs and public agencies were on their heels for, you know, worried about how they were going to get cut, and particularly in, in areas like energy and the environment. Uh, things were not looking rosy at that time. And so it was actually tricky as a public policy graduate to come down and get a job in government. Yeah. I took a, you know, civil service GS7 job at EPA. Um, I thought I might, you know, go to the, I was, I was trying to debate to go to the Hill or go to an agency. And, and for the issues that I was caring most about, I thought, you know, I'm going to really dive in and learn 
how policymaking is done within an agency. So I, um, one of the alumni that my school uh, targeted me towards as I was coming down to DC was a guy named Bob Perciseppi, who was yes. working at EPA at the time as a deputy administrator or a, an assistant administrator. And uh, and Bob helped me navigate a, a way to, to come in and, and get a job in the water office at EPA. I did that for three or four years. Honestly, not the best fit for me. It was a regulatory position, you know, kind of deep in the weeds. Uh, but I learned a ton. I learned how to write way better than I had before. I really learned how an agency uh, did its work, where, what those limitations were, what the opportunities were, how to think about the issues I cared a lot about in a political environment that was not conducive to that at the time. Um, and then my wife and I decided to move to California, and I was lucky enough to be able to transfer within EPA to go take a political job as the sort of policy advisor to the to, to Clinton's West Coast director of EPA. I see. Okay. Um, so shortly thereafter, you find yourself working for California Governor Gray Davis as his federal representative for energy, the environment, and natural resources. Was that still out in California, or did you pick up and move back to D.C. and start working at the Hall of States? The answer is a little of both. So I... Um, and that that period of time in my life was a good example of learning how to lose elections. So I was uh, working uh, at, in California at EPA at the end of the Clinton-Gore administration and thought I would stay with EPA or at least with the federal government um, when I thought Al Gore would become the president of the United States. Yeah. That did not work out. Um, but about that time, California was going through this crazy energy crisis uh, on the Enron, on the heels of Enron. Um and I went to work for a public affairs agency in San Francisco for a few years that was trying to incentivize energy efficiency and conservation across the state, trying to get oh, okay. the big users of energy companies uh, and others to really lighten their load to, to sort of prevent the blackouts and everything else that were happening. But I learned a ton about energy policy in that. That energy policy isn't a thing that EPA at the time had been spending a ton of time on. So I had a chance to really learn that. And, uh, and on the heels of that crisis sort of abating, uh, Davis needed somebody back in D.C. to manage his energy and environment portfolio. So I did move back to D.C., worked in the Hall of States for a few years until he then got recalled by the voters of California. Um, and I, I left that job. So, you know, not many people uh, around the country are familiar with the Hall of States and the fact that governors have offices that are here in Washington. So can you just describe, you know, that function? Yeah, it's a super interesting uh, function, I found. You know, that you're right. Every governor, most governors, not everyone, I guess, but most governors have an office in the Hall of States. It's a single building right off the Capitol uh, where um, you have a chance to all be in the same, you know, be in the same space. And uh, it doesn't matter what party, uh, you know, you're all sort of next to each other. Uh, and so you really get a chance to convene in caucuses, much as I imagine happens on the Hill, where there's, you know, the set of Western governors and a set of uh, Democratic governors uh, who are constantly meeting to try to develop joint policy or aligned policy. Um, and then you're working really as a conduit with the delegation of your state, right? So the the joy I had, again, being a Californian, but also working for the governor of California. Gray Davis at the time had lost a lot of political capital through the energy crisis. And yet he was the governor of the largest state, right, with the largest congressional delegation. And so my job was on the issues of energy and environment uh, to be the conduit between the state and the delegation. Um, and 
at least at that time, as George W. Bush was coming to office and frankly trying to roll back a bunch of things that uh, the Clinton administration had done, it was a chance to really lead, even without Gray having the, the you know sort of political capital that he once had. This, the, the delegation, the state of California, wanted to be annoying to George W. Bush and <laughs> and push back on things that they thought you know needed to stay in place. So we were also battling FERC at the time, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, on all of the outgrowth of the Enron crisis, and so it was a super busy time. But um, being able to be in that building with a bunch of other governors who had that similar mandate was just a, a, a really great educational process for me. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, you know, having experience with state governments, I, I have found folks who have it always learn a lot about policy and and the interplay between kind of state laboratories and federal lovers and, and how they can work in concert or against one another. Taking California in particular, which is you know, forward leaning when it comes to policy development on the energy and environmental side today, it is also one of many states. Um, all of our states are experiencing climate change, but it it the way it is experiencing climate change makes national news, right? I mean, floods and also drought and mudslides and wildfires, etc. When I look back on my public service. I am so proud of so many things. And I can also look at a basket of things. I'm like, man, I just wish we had gotten those things done. When you reflect on on at least that period of time, are there things that you look at and think, I'm really glad we were able to do X. Otherwise, things would be a lot worse. And is there anything you're like, boy, I just wish we'd been able to get this other thing across the line? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, the the opportunities uh, were huge, even when the challenges were vast, right, at that time. Uh, one of the things that no matter what era you work in California politics dominates your time is water policy. Uh, mm. There's not enough water uh, for the, pop the, the population that exists there. Or I should say, there's plenty of water. It's just not falling in the right places where the people live across the state, right? And so, it's a little ironic to be talking about that now where there's so much snow in California that will melt and, and give them lots of water this coming year. But it's such a cyclical process. And for the time that I was working both uh, for the EPA in San Francisco and for the governor, uh, we were going through a really, really bad drought. And so both on the wildfire side of things, but the impact on the economy, whether that's the agricultural economy or just economic development in the urban centers along the coast, the lack of ability to deliver water was a huge constraint and became a major political liability. So one of the, um, and it's a super divisive issue just, yes. just across the state, um, sometimes by party, but often regionally, right? And by interest group and stakeholder group. So um, I was really proud of the work we did uh, at the end of the Clinton administration with people like uh, Carol Browner and Bruce Babbitt and others working closely with the governor's office at the time when we had the same party in office. We were able to move some stuff forward that I think was fairly durable policy. Um, and that felt good knowing that, you know, they're hard decisions, but if you don't make them when you're able to make them, it might be another 20 years before you do it. Uh, ironically, the last day that I was in the White House, uh, my last meeting was between uh, the president and Governor Brown uh, on California water policy. So I thought, this Incredible. is full circle, right? That yeah. I started doing this California water policy work 20 some years ago. And as I leave, here it is again. That's incredible. 
Um, okay, so I want to I want to take you uh, to your White House days. In 2009, you joined the Obama administration. Um, you spent six years there at the White House Council on Environmental Quality, or CEQ, that I got to know you when you were the chief of staff there. You also later served as acting chair for more than a year. For those who are unfamiliar with CEQ as a component within the White House, will you describe its role? Sure. So the Council on Environmental Quality was created back in 1969 uh, by something called the National Environmental Policy Act uh, when Richard Nixon was president. And it really has two functions uh, that were passed in this statute. Uh, One is that the council is meant to be the chief environmental advisor to the president as they're developing policies on everything from climate change to public lands to uh, conservation and energy and all of those things, right, to be the president's eyes and ears across the government on how those policies are stacking up. The second thing is it's responsible for implementing a law, the National Environmental Policy Act, which is a law that's designed to ensure that when infrastructure projects or federal actions are uh, using federal money, so roads, highways, anything like that, that they're being built with input from the public and the local communities that might be impacted by them. So uh, so CEQ is uh, created by statute, which is sort of rare for a part of the White House. That isn't yeah. what typically happens. It is allocated staff and allocated a budget through that. Again, somewhat rare for a component of the White House. Um, and there is a chairperson who uh, who then serves as the president's environmental advisor, uh, but who also you know works across the cabinet to ensure that there's consistency of approach and and frankly deconflicting uh, where various statutes that those secretaries are trying to implement uh, uh, take place. And so yeah, my job was to. Um, uh, in various stages, and we can talk about that, I, I sort of evolved my role while there, but to do both sides of those things, both on the implementation of the law as it relates to these infrastructure projects and federal actions, and to be the president's environmental advisor. Yeah. And so you talked about one of your first jobs. I think your first job at EPA was civil service, uh, G7. How did that experience and getting a window into you know the work of your staff or colleagues at that time help you do the work at CEQ from the, you know, the, the vantage point of the White House? Yeah, it really helped me uh, in that role at CEQ to have spent uh, the five years or so that I spent at EPA, right, really understanding how a federal agency uh, takes its mandate, uh, uses and deploys its workforce against that, Um, And frankly, this is true for every federal agency, but God bless Congress for all the laws that it passes. But it's often, right, an accumulation of laws that don't stack up so neatly in terms of implementation. And so EPA, just like many others, is is victim of that, where you're trying to make sense of how to rationalize statutes that were written over 40 years, um, uh, all in tackling the current day's problems. And so having a grounding in how the regulatory process works and understanding the political sensitivities around that and the 
the implementation challenges of actually executing that, not in Washington and DC, but in 50 states across the country, um, was super helpful as I got to CEQ to think about, okay, this is not just about EPA, right? It's about the agencies that we traditionally um, think about when we talk about energy and environment, right? The Department of the Interior, the Department of Agriculture, EPA, those kinds of agencies, but also agencies like the Department of Transportation or the Department of Defense who are spending um, much of their time each day tackling some environmental opportunities or constraints in how they're executing the statutes that they're responsible for. So I felt really lucky and grateful that I'd had the time uh, you know, deep in the weeds of a federal agency and then a chance to be um, in a political role at an agency to just understand all of those sides uh, as I was dealing with the cabinet and their team uh, to try to, you know, do that work from the White House and to make sure that that what we were doing in the White House, trying to drive the president's agenda, lined up well with the requirements of the, the bills that, you know, the laws that they needed to be executing. Yeah. Well, and as I heard you describe also your work uh, on behalf of California, that too had to be really useful because, as you've described, kind of figure, solving these policy problems is never a an exercise in just uh, hard thinking uh, around the issue itself. There's always a political set of constraints, challenges, critics, et cetera, that have to be solved for. And they they, too, have a policy point of view. But as you said, sometimes you, that policy point of view is determined by where you sit. Are you working in agriculture or in tourism or, you know, do you live in an urban area or a rural area, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so working through that process from the from the White House had to be an exercise in kind of solving several Rubik's Cubes at the same time. Absolutely. I mean, I think the combination, I obviously hadn't planned it out this way, but the combination of having spent time in a relatively big state that, you know, in most other places around the world would be its own country, right, in terms of the size and scale of the economy and the yeah. government and the population, um, and then spending time within an agency, those were great training grounds for me to come to the White House with some perspective on both the uh, the possibilities, right, that the, the way that policy could be used to really change people's lives and change the conditions on the ground and the and the real constraints um, and uh, and kind of cross currents that you have to be able to navigate in order to make these things work in the real world. Right. I mean, lots of words on paper uh, trying to lift those into real life and um, and make them executable is not an easy exercise. I mean, I think I. You know, we were a few years into our time in the Obama administration when the Gulf oil spill happened. And, you know, that, again, was a confluence of industry that was trying to, you know, execute its uh, strategies to uh, to extract uh, uh, energy resources, agencies at the federal level that were trying to regulate and manage that, um, and states that were trying to do a little version of both, right? And and us trying to then in the midst of a crisis, that, that's sort of that complex, that's a complex uh, system to try to navigate in normal times. But then yeah. you add on the crisis and the urgency um, and the, you know, 24-7 uh, camera view on CNN of that, you know, uh, <laughs> leak yes. um, yeah. made it really hard to try to balance those competing interests. And so those those cross currents I were I was talking about were even harder to navigate during that time. But I was grateful that I had at least had some experience in those various camps. 
Yeah. No, that's such a good example because when a crisis like that happens and we are watching it unfold in real time, the conditions under which you are making policy choices is very different. You know, I mean, it's just so intense. Obviously, it's so important for the for the people that that live along the coastline, for the people who work right in the Gulf and depend on it. Um, but it does mean that you, policy decisions are constrained by the realities that you are operating in, right? News, political, et cetera. Absolutely. I mean, and and you know, we. I don't think at the time we knew sort of how long that would last, how uh, how constrained some of our options would be. Um, but and it was a relatively, you know, we were relatively new as a team trying to do that, and it really brought in. I mean, I don't remember the number of agencies, but a, a dozen or more that were meeting, you know, more than daily with our state counterparts uh, to try to solve this thing. Uh, and then, of course. On the back end of that was years of restoration work once once the thing was capped, uh, which was equally complex, right? Uh, yes. For all the the various reasons that you just walked through, and so um, you know that was it was not an easy time. Uh, on the other hand, I think those of us that were in the middle of that learned so much about how government can help, can sometimes get in the way, how the various parts of governments—state, local, federal, tribal—you um, know are either designed to interact well and leverage each other or not. Um, so it was in many ways um, a good experience, although, you know, housed in a crisis. Yeah. I, look, I, you captured it so beautifully. One of my big takeaways and my vantage point was through the Ledge Affairs function, we would bring experts up to brief members of Congress on the status. And these would sometimes happen multiple times per week. And there wasn't a single briefing that I sat through when that I did not leave thinking, wow, these people are so expert. They, you know, they, they have so much experience and wisdom that they are bringing to this awful situation that, you know, while, as you said, it took a while, you know, to, to cap the well and, and move on to restoration. We had great people like America had great people working throughout all the various agencies and sub agencies to try to resolve the issue. That's right. No, it, it, it made you feel, um, it made me feel proud to be a part of that team, um, knowing that, again, it, that wasn't a common occurrence, sort of, you know, that people had seen that movie before and knew the, the, um, the play that we were going to call each time. But boy, it was really, um, it, was, it was fun in a way, although it was super stressful to be able to do that with that um, amazing group of folks. Yeah. So uh, as we said, your job at CEQ evolved. You played several different roles. Um, you eventually were the acting chair of CEQ. So you were the principal of this component and were reliant on your colleagues' staff work. Did that experience of being the principal at CEQ, did it shed any light or, or change your perspective at all on staff work? It's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, again, grateful that I had had four years at CEQ uh, as a staffer before I was put in a position to to lead it. And uh, and absolutely, that informed how I approached that work, right? You, I think you often sort of uh, start to remember all the stuff that you wish the principals you've worked for in the past did for you while you were staffing them. So, so you know, things like really making myself available as much as possible, where I had hoped, you know, like time is such a, such a constraint for every principal, but where you can be as available as, as possible uh, 
always helpful. Providing as much context for people on the internal and external dynamics that were shaping your decision making or the pressures that you're feeling from other parts of the building or other parts of the government. Helping the team see around as many corners uh, as possible, which is, uh, you know, it's a hard skill, but from from a, a place where you're leading, you have a slightly different vantage point. And so making sure that that's visible as much as, as it can be to people helps them make better decisions and sort of funnel you the information you need to be agile on that. And then, um, yeah, really, I think also connecting them with the right folks, both internally and externally that could help them do their job as best they could. You know, I mean, I had access to more people when I was, uh, the principal there and that, um, that helped me certainly do my job, but it, um, it, it, I was constantly reminded that I would be better in that job if I sort of extended that network to the people around me, you know? And so, so anyway, I think having spent years, not just even at CEQ, but at EPA and for the governor, those experiences uh, are always good, uh, good examples of how you then want to perform when you, when you get the reins. The what an outstanding list uh, of how to support staff, truly, um, because we I mean, we talk with a lot of staffers and not all of them have become principals and that. But the, those things that you just described can absolutely be applied to whomever you're managing. And it's yeah. such a phenomenal list. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. Want a podcast where you learn a bunch about important topics and laugh along the way? Well, then the Sustainability Defined Podcast is for you. Each of our monthly episodes focus on a different sustainability topic. We've covered large issues like biodiversity and sea level rise, as well as more niche ones like green burial and sustainable weddings. We start each episode with a 20-minute introduction to the topic that assumes the listener knows nothing about it. Then, once all the listeners have a base of knowledge, we interview an expert in the field. And we mix in bad slash dad jokes along the way. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts and at sustainabilitydefined.com. Okay, so you've worked with a lot of staffers um, at, you know, interesting parts of the government and you've done it at the highest levels. What in your mind makes a good staffer? Oh boy, lots of stuff, right? Uh, it's an interesting recipe. I think I think one of them is the people who really understand that there's no rule book for how you get things done and who can who can use that well <laughs> end up doing pretty well right so the truth is across government no matter what branch of government you're in or what level of government you're in the path to a solution varies right um, and my comment before about having seen the movie before that only helps so much right you're you're faced with a, a its own set of um, uh, constraints and situations each time. Um, and it's all about decoding, you know, what's possible, what's impossible in this, what's worth trying, what's a waste of time, which personalities are going to help me here? Who, who should I stay away from? You know, like just yeah. trying to navigate your way through that um, and recognizing that the next time might be entirely different. Some people are incredible at that. Um, and, and they really rise because they can do that well and, and, um, you know, serve their principle well because of it. And some people that's just not their, that's not their thing, you know? And so I think that, that really distinguished in my mind, um, you know, a great staffer from a not so great one. Um, I also think 
the best staffers that I have been around are just inherently curious people who are always looking around the corner for something, right? And and whether it's their optimism that drives that curiosity or it's their distrust of something and they want to find a different answer. I think those who are curious and not content um, end up being um, workhorses, you know, and, and as a principal, you want tons of those people around you. <laughs> um, yes. So anyway, those two things stand up. I guess the third thing I'd say is um, people who can really understand that the, just how multifaceted policy, how much, how multifaceted it is to execute and and implement policy, right? That you can be a savant on the policy weeds and the details, but to actually lift that up involves a real political savvy and sensitivity, an ability to tell the story of what that policy does and the messaging. Uh, anyway, people who who can weave that together. Um, at the staff level, save so much time for the principal having to do that themselves, you know? And so people who are um, willing to go outside the lane that they were even maybe hired for, but to think about the different strands that they need to, to blend is just a huge service to the people they're serving. What a beautiful answer. Those three things really resonate with me. And they they also tie together for me because, you know, I think when when some people might hear that they, you know, somebody works in policy or they help implement a law, it can sound dry and programmed, right? It can sound, and what you've just described is a creative process, you know, that that solutions can come in many different forms just because we haven't conceived of it before doesn't mean we can't conceive of it now, both in the structure of an idea, but also how it gets done. Absolutely. There's much more flexibility to your point. I mean, it's so interesting having left government and doing work now with a bunch of entrepreneurs. You know, there's often this rap that government is so not entrepreneurial, right? That there's less creativity and um, fluidity and flexibility. And actually, I found that to not be true at all, right? That you're forced to you're forced to be creative and reinvent constantly because, as I said before, the conditions are constantly changing, right? What even more so in government sometimes than than in the private sector, I found that, you know, the situation is changing hourly. And so, yes. I mean, the politics of that situation is changing hourly. And so your ability to pivot um, and put down whatever your plan was yesterday and pick up a new one is really uh, is really distinctive in that in that line of work. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, okay. So let me ask the flip side. Did you have a pet peeve when it came to staff work? I don't know that I had a pet peeve. I think, you know, I guess for, for you know, we get a lot of people in DC who this is their first time in DC, right? Like they're just coming into the federal government. And I was one of those people when I talked about my early days in EPA. Yep. The thing that I always say is you need to be both, you know, when people who are just starting out ask me sort of, how do I get into this? How do I, how do I navigate that? Well, it's being both humble and ambitious at the same time is a thing that I talk about all the time where, you know, you should jump in, you should become indispensable, you should soak up as many different experiences as you can. Um, and you should have a little humility that, you know, you're, you're just learning this. Um, and and it will take some time and it's incumbent on the more senior folks around you to have a little grace as you learn that. <laughs> um, and 
to have a little for you to have a little humility as you do that, right? And I think that balance is hard to get right. Um, and I think often, whether it's on the hill, whether it's in an agency, whether it's at the White House, those people who are a little off of off out of whack on that balance um, can sometimes end up not being a great staffer, right? For a yeah. variety of reasons. Yeah, great. Um, okay, I, I want to talk to you about your current job um, in just a minute. But my last question for you is those moments where um, in staffing at CEQ, you were to brief the president. And that is a moment that not everyone gets to do. And it's a big moment. He's going to have you know, right a limited amount of time and probably less than you were told. And you've got to go in and hit your marks and be prepared for questions. So tell me about how you approached the brief. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it, it's. I'm sure it depends. The answer to that question depends on who that principal is, right? And Barack Obama was his own, um, you know, unique person who was incredibly well studied on whatever the topic was. Um, so I remember the first time I briefed him was um, was on a Saturday in the midst of a big snowstorm in D.C., back in the days when we used to get big snowstorms in D.C. And the government, uh, you know, nothing was open in D.C., but I made my way down super early so that I didn't, I wasn't late for that session. Um, And we're sitting in the Oval having these conversations with a number of cabinet secretaries and others. And I did have to pipe in on a few points, but boy, did I study that up ahead of time in a big way to make sure that the thing that I knew he had read that we had submitted, which had a bunch of options in it and and a lot of analysis, I knew that he would know that just as much as I did, right? That even though there were lots of perspectives in the room, um, that I was not the smartest person in the room on that. And so um, what I remember is, you know, really thinking about how to use his time well, you know, that we only have a sliver of it we don't actually need to review um, all of the facts or all of the possibilities. What we really need this guy to do is to make a decision, you know, that we, um, the things, you know, don't get to him until they reach that point. And um, there was no need to prolong that for very long. So I had to, you know, just be precise uh, and, and really concise in how I, how I approached that. So anyway, that was a good lesson for me in all of the times that I talked with him, remembering that, uh, just the weight of that job that he had and, and, and how my little piece of it, which may feel big to me at the time, was super small compared to everything else he was dealing with. So, so don't make it any bigger than it needs to be. Yeah. Well, that's a perfect transition uh, to your, your current job and organization because there aren't many people who get to work in organizations that are global in scale and um, high profile um, and have at the top people who can take in such amounts of, uh, of information and have the vision, right, uh, to try to make a global impact. And now you are experiencing that for a second time, first at the White House and now um, at uh, where you've been for the last nine years, first at Gaines Ventures and now at Breakthrough Energy. Um and I understand that they're part of the same family, sort of, but how do those structures fit together? Um, and, and how has your role evolved over the last nine years? Yeah, so I, um, it's actually been about seven years, I think, since I got oh, here. Okay. But I, I left the White House. I spent a little bit of time at the Aspen Institute. And then I, uh, I joined Bill Gates's office, Gates Ventures. 
um, where my most of that operation, which is this is private office, so separate from the Gates Foundation and the work that he'd been doing at Microsoft, Bill set up an office more than a dozen years ago to really tend to sort of all of the other interests he had outside of the Gates Foundation and its focus on global health and poverty uh, and the work at Microsoft. Um, and most of that team was in Seattle. I got hired to be the first person sort of in a satellite office um, tending to the policy and political side of that work um, here in D.C. Uh, to be honest, it was a it was a very amorphous role at the time when I got hired. They weren't exactly sure what that would look like. Um, they were pretty sure that it was going to be uh, ha- have a have a high focus on climate and energy, which is why I got that job and not somebody you know from the healthcare world or the transportation world or. Or, or the foreign affairs world. Um, and so I spent a few years inside Gates Ventures, his private office, uh, developing that line of work for him, essentially. How to, how to take the things that were of most interest to him, either from a private investment perspective, or just a, again, back to our earlier comment about curiosity, right? Things that he was interested in, where he thought his voice uh, uh, could play a role, um, and to weave that into the policy process in DC. Um, and so we started an office here. I still lead that office with a team of people uh, here in Washington. And then that work grew more and more into the climate and energy space, as I was saying. And a few years ago, probably about four years ago, Bill decided to write a book about climate change. Uh, and when he did that, really took a step back and said, have I built an organization that can help me execute against the ambition that I outline in this book? Um And while we had been doing a bunch of work in the venture capital space and on the policy side, both here in the U.S. and in Europe, the answer to that question was really no. There was more that we could do. And so we stood up, sort of spun out the climate and energy team from Gates Ventures. We stood up our own LLC called Breakthrough Energy. Uh, And I am now the executive vice president at Breakthrough Energy, where I oversee our global policy work and all of our external affairs work, which for us is corporate partnerships and philanthropic partnerships and communication. So it's more of a corporate public affairs role. Um, And that oversees a bunch of our work, both on the private capital side, uh, on the philanthropic side, and then some of our policy and political work. Every time I talk to you about your work, I learn of something that's really interesting. You know, I mean, because you really are on, on a leading edge of addressing climate and finding uh, you know solutions to the energy uh, problems that we face. What is something that you're working on today, this week, this month, that you find really interesting and that you think our listeners would find interesting? Well, I get the chance to spend a lot of time, as, as you were saying before, with somebody who's just an inherently curious, really well-studied person who is motivated by uh, the possibilities of innovation. So Bill is, when he thinks about climate and energy, just like when he thinks about global poverty or global health, he is focused on how we innovate our way to solutions there and using the, frankly, the power of uh, the innovation ecosystem that exists in this country. Thanks, frankly, to a lot of public investment and government seeding of labs and universities and others that is second to none around the world for how we have built that um, that DNA here in, in this country. Um, and so, you know, having spent a few decades working on climate and energy, frankly, not with as much of a focus on innovation. It is a real treat now to spend every day 
with just this constant flood. I feel like I'm standing in the middle of a river with a constant flood of new ideas that are coming, right? And yeah. some of those ideas will most certainly fail, um, right? They're, they're high-risk bets on, um, on possible solutions. Um, but he thinks, I think, several of us here think, you know, if this problem is as urgent as we say it is, we should be turning over every rock to find those solutions. And um, for someone with his resources and others like him, the ability to put high-risk capital out there to incentivize folks working on that challenge rather than another challenge is, um, is, a, is just a tremendous opportunity. So in the climate and energy space, you know, there are things, a lot of attention has been paid to um, traditional renewable energy, which thank God the cost parity around renewable energy is way different than it looked, even when we were working in the White House on some of yes. these issues. Um, yep. So things like wind and solar um, and the, the boom in uh, electric vehicles is just dramatically different than where it was. Um, unfortunately, renewable energy, um, you know, is generated uh, when the sun is shining and when the wind is blowing. And there's lots of times when those two things aren't happening. Um, and there's a thriving battery market in this country around lithium ion batteries, which are what's powering lots of things that we all use. Um, and unfortunately, for all of the uh, advancements we know we need to tackle climate and to advance this economy, and a lot of the things that are in the climate legislation that made its way through this town last year, we will need a whole lot more renewable energy and electricity than we have today. And so we need to find ways to store that electricity, right? And so when you ask, what am I most interested in or what am I seeing? The amount of creativity around um, new ventures uh, uh, for energy storage, not just for a few hours or a few days, but to store the energy from the sun or the wind or wherever for a whole season, for example, um, using chemistries that, you know, people hadn't thought of before. Um, it's just, it gives, it gives you a lot of optimism. Again, some of those solutions might never make their way to market, but the fact that there is, uh, a lot of money and more importantly, a lot of intellectual horsepower being spent, uh, towards that goal is hugely inspiring. Yeah. Well, in addition to learning things, I always leave our conversations more optimistic uh, because, you know, climate news is depressing and that's the nature of news. It reports bad news generally. And so I am I am so glad that you are where you are working on this set of problems. I'm so glad Bill Gates has dedicated his, you know, so much of his resources and time and, and thought to this set of problems. My last question before I get to our, our final two, you know, you are now staffing Bill Gates, who is not a, an elected leader but is obviously one of the most successful business leaders we've ever had and now in the world of philanthropy. What do you take from your staffer life to plug into, you know, advancing his mission and making sure that the organization and he have what they need? Yeah, it's uh, ironically or not, it is the same skill set. You know, it doesn't matter which sector you're doing this. And I have found that um, the things that we talked about earlier, right, as I transition from a staffer to a principal and the things that I find valuable uh, in staffers that I've worked with and continue to work with are the same. It's the same skill set that that you and I built over the years doing that work inside government. And so, um, you know, the market looks a little different. 
um, some of the near-term uh, realities and constraints might vary. But in terms of how you staff someone who is leading that, uh, kind of on that leading edge, the skill set is the same. Um, and so, you know, needing to be inherently curious to match his curiosity, right, is really, really important. Needing to um, really understand how the institutions around us work. I needed to know that inside government. I need to know that here, both in terms of governments, but um, investors and corporate structures, and, you know, both here and internationally. Um, understanding how you manage big bureaucracies to get things done, right? I mean, we are not a big bureaucracy in this organization I'm in, but we interact with them all day long. And so just having that knowledge uh, and and um, experience helps him, I think, figure out how to, how to navigate some of that. Um, and then frankly, you know, this is true in politics, it's true in, in business that um, knowing how to navigate relatively big egos, you know, people with lots of money and big companies and and big market share and those are the people we are talking to all the time um not too different from people who are running big committees or running big agencies or right, who have big constituencies and um figuring out that you know you can know the substantive answer this gets to my earlier point about the complexity of these fields the, the policy answer or the the technical answer might be 10% of the, the, the solution, right? The other 90% is about how you bring those people along, how you use persuasion to get them where you need them to, how you work their teams before you work them, I mean, all that stuff that we spend our time learning in, in government. And, and to your comment about optimism, I mean, this kind of feeds into it as well. Bill describes himself, actually two, two phrases around that I, I, I hold close. Bill refers to himself as an impatient optimist, which I identify with a lot. I mean, that feels um, like a frame that I've had for my few decades working in this space. Um, and my first, uh, one of my first bosses, the regional head of EPA out in San Francisco, used to describe herself as a relentless incrementalist, which I love. Uh, yes, which is, those you know, are both great. Yeah. You can, again, and it really informed the way I approach staffing, which is you can shoot for, you know, the, um, the, the home run and, and you hope you get there. Um, and particularly in the job I'm in today, we don't get a ton of those home runs, but we are moving the ball down the field, we feel, constantly. And both in the policy world and the business world, the investment world, the, the sort of line of sight on what's possible to be both optimistic and a little impatient, but also willing to just take what you can get and keep moving, um, is really informative both to how I do my job and how I you know, staff, staff him. Oh, such wisdom uh, in your answer. Thank you for that. Um, okay, let me close with a couple of questions that I like to ask all of my guests. One is a segment I call In the Vault. Tell us about a time where you made a mistake. What was it? How did you recover? What did you learn from it? Oh boy, there's probably many of those. The, um, the, the one that springs to mind when you ask that is, uh, was in, in the job uh, early, relatively early in my career for the regional head of EPA, um, I was again coming out of a civil service job, which was again not 
uber political, much more policy, you know, deep in the policy weeds. And I was transitioning to a job that needed to be much more politically savvy, frankly. And so I was learning on the job on that. And this was at the near tail end of the Clinton administration, and it was around California water. So we were in the midst of a really bad drought. Uh, we were having people like Bruce Babbitt and Carol Browner come out to California to do joint events with the governor of California to basically take the temperature down um, when these water disputes were happening with all the constituencies we talked about earlier. And part of my job during that time was to stand up some public uh, meetings or public hearings around that with some of these elected officials. And I thought I had really done my homework and, uh, and organized that well, had a diversity of views that were gonna be represented. Um, what I didn't appreciate was how much diversity of views there were, even within each sector, right? So the, I, I think I underestimated the, the diversity within the ag community or the diversity within the tribal community or the diversity within the environmental community. And when we got together for this one public hearing, it was just an absolute disaster. It was a carnival of, um, you know, uh, screaming and anyway, it was it was a it was a bad setup and lots of people above me pointed to me as having sort of set that up in a way that actually didn't make these principles uh, look on top of you know the the agencies that they had oh. that were not set up to be responsive um, and I learned very quickly that my job was actually not just about the policy. This gets to my ten percent, ninety percent thing, right? I was way over indexed on like we've got the right answer here rather than we have taken the time to hear all these people's views um, and to get creative on how we solve that. And more importantly than any um, was that we needed to simply listen. Actually, we didn't need to have an answer. What we needed to is to show up and let people know that they were heard. And so that was a really hard lesson, but a great lesson for me to figure out at that stage of my career um, of just sort of how multifaceted and, and, um, and messy this, this business was. Yeah. Mistakes are just a part of every career and they, and they never stop happening. But having a really searing experience like that early does pay dividends. You know, I mean, it, re it really does. We're, we're all going to make mistakes eventually, but having that, that, that imprint on your soul of a, you know, <laughs> right. Cause that's the way it feels yeah. and be able to take those lessons and move them forward is, you know, better than not having the experience and certainly better than having that late uh, <laughs> in one's career. Okay. My last question for you, if I could raise the money and get the permitting to build a hall of fame to staffers on the national mall, who would you nominate mm. to the staffer hall of fame and why? Oh, wow. Um, I would I would probably, can I name two people? That breaks of course, rule. absolutely. Uh, you yes. know, the two people, when I was able to lead CEQ for that year and a half, um, the two people that I reported into who were, um, who were principals, but who were staffers themselves, were John Podesta and Brian Deese. And mm. both of those guys were... Um, just incredible to work for, uh, you know, incredibly focused and driven, always prepared, had really done their homework, tenacious uh, and persistent on the things they were trying to pursue, pursue really creative problem solvers. Like to our earlier conversation, they, they didn't 
uh, follow the map, but they knew how to get to yes. Um, and they were deeply committed to public service, right? Like just had that in their, in their veins. And so, um, it was a, it was a huge joy to work with both of them, to learn a ton. And, e and, and even with all of that, that I just described that they brought to the job, I think more than anything, they're both just really good humans too, who cared a lot about the people around them, who brought a certain humanity to their work that, um, that was really refreshing in a town where you sometimes don't see that. Yep. Outstanding nominees. Mike, you have been such a pleasure to talk to. You have been, you were a terrific colleague when I got to work with you. I've admired um, your work and your career, and I'm so thankful that the country benefited from your public service and that we continue to benefit from what you're doing today. So thank you. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you for all that you do. Um, it's been a pleasure having you. Thanks so much, Jim. And thank you for doing this. It's, it's, a, it's a great service to sort of share these stories uh, for all those folks who are just coming into this, this business. So, so thank you for all that you're doing, too. You bet. You're here. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.